And I am back. I have to apologize for the gap between the last episode and this one. I had some family and some financial hardships that needed attending to. However, everybody is now back to being healthy and happy, and now I have time to get back on track with the show. So speaking of the show, I'm still looking for future guests. So if you would like to be featured or know someone who would like to share their conservation work, uh, talking no matter how big or how small, email me at feedback at sciencescenes.com. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Jill D'Amato from the Education Department of Brookfield Zoo. Jill and I met as colleagues enrolled in the AIP program through Miami University and Brookfield Zoo. In this episode, Jill and I talk about her work creating conservation and biology education programs through the Brookfield Zoo and how all of us can contribute to the engagement and the education of the next generations and how darn important that is. So now, let's get on with our next story. Welcome to Unless, Stories from Everyday Earthsavers, a podcast where I interview ordinary people, people just like you who through passion, inspiration, or straight-up determination have found a way to direct the future of our environment toward a more perfect outcome. Through their words, I hope to inspire you, the listener, to learn, to grow, or to make a change no matter how small. Your actions have the power to shape our future, because in the great words of Dr. Seuss, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, Nothing is going to get better. It's not. Now on to today's story. Welcome to today's episode of Unless Stories of Everyday Earthsavers. Uh, today I am talking with Jill D'Amato, a fellow student of mine through the AAPE program in Miami University. And so as we begin every show, I just wanted to talk with my guest about what they are doing to make this world a better place through either conservation or environmental science action or education. So Jill, tell me a little bit about your work. All right. I would love to do so. So I am the manager of Nature Start programs at the Brookfield Zoo, um, specifically located in the Hamill Family Play Zoo, which is an exhibit that is for children, young children and their families, to encourage connecting them with nature and becoming conservation leaders. So that job actually entails, at, at this point in my career, doing a lot of paperwork, but it started off with doing a lot more frontline interacting with young children and their families and trying to be that uh, enthusiastic adult who's helping them have positive experiences in nature and with animals based a little bit off of Rachel Carson's uh, Sense of Wonder book. And at this point, in addition to the reason I said I do a lot more spreadsheets is um, in a management position, I'm overseeing a suite of programs that all fall under our early childhood initiative, which is called Nature Start. And so that's the Hamill Family Play Zoo exhibit, the classes that we offer, both the drop-in that are happening every day, as well as scheduled fee-based classes, and then our camps. We offer summer camp, winter camp, spring camp, and sleepovers. Um, so all of that towards connecting kids with nature. Awesome. So how did you start exactly? You said that originally you're out there being that trusted adult who was engaging and interacting. How did your original career start when you were doing those sorts of interactions? I happily stumbled into informal education at zoos and aquariums, which until I was interning, I had no idea that that opportunity existed. I was finishing up my undergrad, and that was in environmental geography. Had been doing some outreach on my own to local schools with, I had two Huskies at the time, and had teachers asking me to come out and talk with students about animal adaptations with them. So I was like, all right, I'm really liking animals. Um, I'd actually started off in early childhood education, so knew that I loved going and working with 
kids of all ages, but especially younger kids and um, connecting with them. So I just finished my undergraduate degree and saw that Brookfield Zoo, which incidentally, because I grew up about an oh, maybe a mile due west of Lincoln Park Zoo. Um, So growing up in Chicago, those are your two zoos that are in the area. Being a city kid, I always went to Lincoln Park. It's free admission. My mom had four kids, needed something to do with us, so we spent a lot of time there. I had not been to Brookfield, um, I think maybe on a field trip, like middle school age. So until I was an intern here, I hadn't really been to the zoo. Um, so I was pretty blown away. It's huge. It's 216 acres. Lincoln Park, for comparison, is 32. And once here as an intern, saw the capacity for doing informal education for learners of all ages. Again, world that I did not know existed. And it happened to align with the time that the Hamill Family Play Zoo exhibit, they had just broken ground on construction. The Play Zoo had been in the works in terms of planning since 1997, and they broke ground for construction late 99. It opened in 2001, and I was one of the first 18 staff that were brought on. And as a frontline crew member, my job title, no joke, was play partner, (laughs) which... um, When I, I remember I filed my taxes that year and the person I was working with, she was helping me prep them. And she's like, I'm sorry, you're a what? I'm like, it's legit. It's it's right there. Um, we used to have to wear shirts that would say play partner across the back and learned really quickly. If you go grocery shopping and that, there's just you're putting yourself open to all kinds of comments and questions. <laughs> that was frontline. And it was pretty cool. Our main job was to interact with families and have interactions with them that promoted going outside and exploring, observing the wildlife that's around you, direct contact with animals, with nature, caring for plants. They originally called it a zoo within the zoo. It's our former small mammal house and uh, one of the first exhibits built at Brookfield Zoo, so it opened to the public in 1934. At this point, the two remaining original parts are the two wings when you first enter into the building. One houses our lemurs and the other wing has um, the majority of our reptiles. So other than that, everything was built from the ground up and it was made to replicate at child size and then also age appropriate for learning the larger zoo for kids to be able to enter that world uh, at a level that's appropriate for them. So we've got a replica of our animal hospital, but it's done at kid size. We still use as many real materials as possible. So you're not going to find like the Fisher-Price kind of cutesy stethoscopes. We use actual stethoscopes. Um, We get oral syringes so that they can administer medication to the plush animals that serve as the animals that they're working on. And those have been modified where um, we have a seamstress work and insert organs so that the kids can operate on them. Um, so, and everything's done at you know, young child size scale. We also have an active greenhouse where they go in and take care of plants. And initially, like myself included, everyone was like, all right, how exciting is a greenhouse going to be? And in the times that we have done guest surveys, um, of the 11 settings that we have available, that's in the top three. And no joke, they will go in and they, they're always, it's one of the most simple setups. It's a greenhouse, all kinds of live plants. We put out spray bottles, which we did learn really quickly to use a soldering iron to kind of melt 
the spray head into a fixed position. Otherwise, they become water guns really quickly. But kids will go around and they will spend an hour in there just going to each plant and squirting it with water. Um, for some parents, they find it mind numbing. Other parents, they, you know, they'll, they'll go along with the kids for a little bit and then maybe check in on their phones or whatnot. Um, but the kids are completely into it. They're taking care of something that's alive. They're interacting with it. And they're also building their um, gross motor skills with being able to hold that bottle and squeeze and spray and not drop everything. So that was one of the bigger pleasant surprises for that setting where no one really knew what was going to happen with it. The other really cool thing is we do grow plants in there that serve as food for animals in the zoo. So kids are directly contributing to animal care. There's a variety of settings that are in this building, but the main theme with everything is that it's a building made for kids to become part of the zoo. So they can dress up as keepers and take care of animals. They can dress up to be animals like lemurs um, and play right alongside, granted, with like a one-inch thick glass wall between them, but play right alongside our real lemurs. All of the signage that's done, there's kid-drawn signage that goes with every animal ID that's put out just to show that it's not just a place for kids, but it's a place that's made by kids as well. Yeah, I can speak from experience. I have a uh, six-year-old and a four-year-old, and we try to stop. We have a membership at Brookfield Zoo, and we try to stop in at the Hamill Family Play Zoo almost every time we go, if we have the time at least. I was going to say, make yeah. it your last stop because you <laughs> might not get anywhere else. <laughs> right, right. No, definitely. And um, I was surprised at I agree with you completely. I was surprised at how long my kids uh, do enjoy sitting in, in the greenhouse and, and playing with the plants. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I, I really found to be fascinating and, and I mean continue to is as adults, I mean, we make a lot of assumptions about kids, period. But one of the major assumptions I had made as somebody working in a zoo is that they would be really excited about kind of those megafauna traditional zoo animals, right? So giraffe and elephant and, and lions and it's actually places like in the greenhouse where they've got these opportunities to get up really close and have contact with the smaller things that we typically are kind of like, yeah, that's that's all right. Like we've got these sensitive plants. Um, I think the scientific name on ours specifically are Mimosa pudica. And they're the ones that when you touch, they kind of collapse because it's their defense mechanism. So it's a plant that literally interacts with you or in response to you. So that was one thing that I was like, wow, kids are really into being in here. But also they are completely drawn to things like earthworms and ladybugs and all these small creatures that we tend, we as adults tend to be like, yeah, it's a bug. All right, let's keep going. But when you think about it, the physical level that they're at, that that to them, that like that's a very relevant right there in front of them animal a lot of the times. More and more, I, I have appreciation for settings like the greenhouse that as an adult, I'm just too thick to appreciate initially. Right. No, I think it too is just that, that experience. It's more new for them. Like I remember as a kid playing with roly polies and ladybugs for probably hours on end almost just seeing observing sure. what they would do how they how they reacted to different stimuli and now I see one on the ground I'm like oh I've been there done that yeah well and and actually like a great thing to do is when you're talking with a bunch of adults and ask them to think back to some of their earliest childhood memories that have to do with animals and or nature and even kids like I grew up in a really urban area in the city of Chicago and even so like a lot of my earliest memories have to do with roly polies or catching lightning bug. So it goes back to the whole sense of wonder, right? Being in the moment and looking at what's around you. And I, I think more and more that I talk with adults and ask them like, well, what is 
it that you remember about nature that may have initially connected you or or sparked your interest? And it does. It comes back to those simple interactions that as we get older, it's kind of like like you were saying, like, oh, been there, done that, until you remember, like, that was amazing to find a bug that its butt lights up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And just how does that work? What is what is it doing? But now you're like, oh no, they they just do that. It's 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 boring. They don't. They just they just glow. It's bioluminescence, duh. <laughs> yeah, they're just doing their thing. All right, cool. Keep going. <laughs> right. So basically, what you're saying is, so your job is to kind of manage the people that are now trying to provide that sense of wonder. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is provide experiences. Um, that allow for folks to be in nature and realize that. So um, one of my favorite memories is we had a school group that was here of kids that were uh, from Chicago. Oh, I can't even remember what school they were from. Chicago Public School Group. They came out and we do, um, during the summers on the weekends, we do ladybug releases. So we release about 4,000 ladybugs and kids help us by, you know, we'll shake some out into their hand and they go around to different plants, which we've um, sprayed before our hand with water to get the ladybugs to stick around for a little bit longer. And for a couple of the kids, they had never had contact with ladybugs before. So initially they were terrified. And then they were, was it going to bite me? Is it going to hurt? And then they were completely enamored of the entire activity. So we're trying to encourage families to have experiences together that involve nature, that involve animals, to play outside, to play with natural items if you can't get outside. And we try to model things that are replicable to do at home. Because while it's great that we have this whole exhibit, you don't need to have a dedicated exhibit space in order to appreciate the feel of lamb's ear plants or the smell of when you go outside after it's just rained. So we're here to kind of point out some of those things to families where daily life gets really, really, it, it gets busy and it's easy to stop and take a moment to look at what's literally around you and and just how nice that can be. That's what made me interested in pursuing the sciences as a career and then biological education later on, mm-hmm. is that growing up, I had some of those experiences, whereas um, your experiences were more from the Lincoln Park Zoo. My experiences were more from the Field Museum. I, I think without that engagement, where would I be now? Right. Yeah, it's it's absolutely, um, I think we one of the things that we have written on our signage when you come in is we're we're here, we want to grow caring kids and to do that by giving them some great positive initial experiences and to engage them in the world that's around them. You talked a little bit about how you got to where you were but why? Why did you choose to narrow in on this engagement factor? I think it came from my initial couple of years here where this is the first exhibit of its kind in North America. And so getting to see, you know, prior to guests coming in and, and seeing how they were interacting with the space and with our, our staff, everything was a theoretical um, and it was based on, the entire exhibit was actually based on the field of conservation psychology, which was started in part by Dr. Carol Saunders, um, who had been one of our staff researchers at the time. Um, she subsequently went on to uh, Antioch University out on the East Coast, and they have an, a dedicated program on conservation psychology. But the, the field itself is looking at how people interact with their environment and, and what prompts that, what motivates that. So in thinking about it initially, I was like, Okay, well, is this you know is is this what prompts people, or is it just that there are some folks who are more intrinsically drawn to, and which I think is true to some degree, 
but seeing families and hearing from them, because we do have a fair amount of families that are, are repeat visitors. We've actually got one family, they literally come in every day after school. And to see how more so than anything that what the kids are doing and, and soaking in is influencing the actions of their parents. And so to know that as simple as some of the stuff is that we do, that it does make a difference and and that it does allow for even very young children to be able to take action. That's one thing. It ties back a little bit to what I was saying before, that we make a lot of assumptions about kids. And we also make so many of their choices for them. And there's, I, I think, something that's really unique about this place is that they're given, we, we want to follow their lead. So we, we try to follow a lot of learner-centered, child-directed play. And for them, that's just to have an adult who's willing to sit and do more listening than talking. That's huge, regardless of whether or not they're, the, the context for it is nature, conservation, education. So that part's always been a huge draw for me. But also, I like being part of an organization that I feel that there's a contribution being made to the bigger picture, that it's more than just reaching bottom line, but that the things that I'm doing and the connections I'm making are making a difference. That's what's kept me going. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why do you feel connected to that bigger picture? Why Why is it important that you're making a difference in this way? Because it's it, it has to do with a topic that I'm personally invested in and, and very passionate about, which is wildlife and nature. And I think... For, for for me, at least, like my personal and professional tend to be very entwined when it comes to purpose and, and passion behind what I'm doing. What's, what's the issues that they're facing right now? What, why do we have to make a difference? Why can't we just sit and watch the changes that we're seeing happen, happen? Oh my gosh, this is what makes watching the news so hard some days. Um, well, because I think there's an intrinsic importance to wildlife and nature. And, and the dynamics between human primates and wildlife and nature. And that it's not even just about, because I really love animals, it, it's about the bigger picture um, of animals being part of a larger world picture and, and ecosystems that we're also part of and the interconnectedness of it all. And one of the things that for me and and the position that I'm in when it comes to young kids, I, I've been hearing forever, pretty much. I mean, I feel like even since I was a kid that, so there have always been a, a variety of environmental crises that from the time I was a kid, I remember hearing about. So rainforest destruction and the ozone layer and that we are ruining our water sources. And so there are all these things that are super duper, just as a kid, overwhelming and daunting. And you're like, wow, what, this is all happening around me. And all of these grownups are telling me about this and you feel completely helpless. Well, as an adult, what I'm also seeing and hearing is it drives me bonkers when I hear other adults saying, but the next generation, they will save us. The next generation is going to make all the difference. They will have the solutions. And while I can tell and say to other adults, you know what? Yes. And it's still on us to do as much as we can to set them up for success and to also stop making stupid choices. But I mean, then again, that's a relative (laughs) assessment, I suppose. But for kids, if they are are going to be, and I shouldn't say if, I mean, to a degree, 
So kids are put with that weight on their shoulders, then what can I do to help them feel like, okay, I can make a difference and I can do something. And that's a lot of what, what, what we're trying to do with the work that we do here at Brookfield Zoo, which is not so much about overwhelming them with the, here's all the horrible things that are happening and that you're going to have to take care of, but to start them off with, here are all these amazing things about the world that's around us and give them reasons to feel connected to it and to want to take care of it and to let them know that there are things that you can do as a kid, like just telling other people about why you think certain animals are amazing and why we should be taking care of them. Um, There was one kid, I will never forget, he was really, really worked up about pandas and didn't he he was only seven years old and he wanted to let somebody know that pandas needed to be taken care of and so his mom had been talking with him about well it's not just the pandas it's where pandas live and that they need their habitat because they only eat a certain kind of food and so he wrote he asked his mom if she would send a letter and he wrote a letter and he wrote it to the I want to say he said the chief of China or maybe he, I but he, the guy in charge and said, you know, we really need to take care of pandas and this is important. And not too long after there was something, so his mom had been telling me about this and it worked out very nicely in terms of coincidence, but there was news about the endangered status on pandas. And I, I can't recall exactly what it is at the time. So I'm not going to say what I think it is because it'll probably be wrong, but he totally felt he's like, I wrote a letter and he listened to me. That guy in charge listened to me and I helped take care of pandas. Wow. Puts a sense of control in that kid's hands. Yeah, exactly. So for something where he was telling, you know, at one point telling his mom, like, well, I don't know what's, I I can't do anything and they're all going to be dying to, I wrote a letter and somebody listened to me. That's, I mean, granted, it's a reality he's creating based on circumstances, but that's got to feel amazing when you're seven years old and literally like can't choose what you want for dinner half the time. So yeah, if put that if put that control on them, they can start taking action because they feel like they can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of making a difference and putting the control in people's hands, what what do you think are some advice you would give the listeners or the everyday? average person, if you could make one or two suggestions to them about how they can, maybe even taking a small step, make a difference uh, to improve our future? Um, I would say one thing is, so if you've got kids and you're wondering, like, what can I help my kids feel that they have control of and contribute to? Even things like environmental good manners, right? So turning off the water when you're brushing your teeth, turning off the lights when you leave a room, really simple, basic things that become habit and they do make a difference and they'll probably, you know, help your wallet in the long run. Um, So that's a simple kind of can do, the whole family can participate in. But I also think talking about what you find important um, and whether that is a particular, the, the, the situation, situation of a particular animal or a uh, natural resource that's local to you and really important. Maybe you're in the Great Lakes area and you're really worried about what's happening with, I don't know, Asian carp, or you're worried about pest species that are coming in through the different ships that come through, or even something as large and and kind of overwhelming and as abstract as climate change. Because I think I've found in talking with folks that the larger an issue is, 
it's actually folks are less likely to want to talk about it because there is so much information coming at you about it. And a lot of times people feel they have to be an expert and even just asking questions and, and wanting to find out more about it, but also being open to hearing the various opinions on it. We, we don't all have to agree. And without having dialogue, I don't think we're going to find ways to connect with each other to work towards common solutions. And pretty much the resources we have right now, they're they're all we've got. So we got to find common ground somewhere to be able to come to a, a place of alignment, if not agreement. Right. Now, as a somebody engaged in helping uh, children engage with nature and everything, are you aware of any uh, additional resources that you would like to share with the listeners for how they can uh, communicate these issues to their children? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is, I'm not too sure if you're familiar with Richard Louvre. He wrote Last Child in the Woods, and it was all about nature, a deficiency, time spent in nature for kids. And he wound up, I remember, and this, gosh, it, it's almost a decade ago at this point, um, but he was getting a huge amount of press and was uh, doing a lot of speaking. I think he wrote a second book that was The Nature Principle. He's a co-founder of Children in Nature Network, and that you can find online. And it's a resource for parents and for educators to be able to look at what's around them in their areas, um, ideas for what they can do out in nature. And then there's also opportunities to connect with other families. And for lack of a better term that's coming to mind right now for me, do like nature playgroups and to network with each other. But also they do annual conferences that are international for informal and formal educators. So that's something that is really accessible to everybody and gives folks a chance to look at both some formal research resources, but also to connect with other families and other people who are interested as well. I'll definitely have to put that in the show notes. So I greatly appreciate you giving me your time today, Jill. Oh, absolutely. Glad to do it. Well, thank you for sharing your uh, story. Awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Have a great day. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unless Stories of Everyday Earthsavers. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and learned something new, or at least gained appreciation for somebody's story, because everybody has a story. Before you leave, I want you to know that I cannot continue without you, the listener, so I thank you so much. If you have any idea for a future show or ways to improve, please drop me an email at feedback at Unless is going to be a twice-monthly show, but the first few episodes will be released at an accelerated pace. To make sure you don't miss a show, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use. Also, make sure to leave a review or comment wherever you downloaded this episode. Positive feedback and constructive criticism can help this podcast to become a better version of itself. So, until next time, take some action to make this world a better place. Because without you, things won't get better. No, they will not. See you soon.